This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world, because we know we have people here with us over the all over the world. Um, greetings and welcome. My name is Rick Simonson. I work in a bookstore in Seattle called Elliott Bay Book Company. And um, on behalf of all the people who are staging this production today, um, we are delighted to be celebrating the publication of Arundhati Roy's newest book, Azadi, Freedom fascism fiction um and this is being published um launched um with uh, her in new delhi so she is uh, in the, her evening hours and um i'm in seattle in where it's still new day and um nick estes who i'll say more of it shortly is i think an hour ahead of me and we know all of you joining us are everywhere around the spectrum. You may even be um, earlier in the morning than here and later in the night than it is in New Delhi. Um, the publication of this book today is uh, an auspicious one. And um, first, though, to um, acknowledge and thank um, all the good work that Haymarket Books, who is the book's publisher, has done um, not only to um, make this um, occasion happen, but also in publishing this book. Um, Haymarket is a a publisher based in Chicago in the U.S. Uh, that has been um, around since 2001 and is dedicated to um, social justice books and has done an amazing array of books um, and has been publishing, um, coming along as, as several of Arundhati Roy's nonfiction books that have come around um, these past 20 years. Um, and um, I think if you, um, I'm not sure what all people are seeing this beforehand, but uh, you can certainly go to haymarketbooks.org and see what all they do um, and what, and they have amazing books coming and and, and others um, that they've done and um, books particularly speaking to the moment we're in. And um, so they are um, part, a huge part of why we're here today. Uh, also um, in Seattle, uh, one of the other co-presenters of this day is uh, an organization uh, called Tasvir. It's a South Asian uh, arts organization uh, based um, with, a so with a strong social justice bent that um, has uh, came about in 2002 in response to what was happening in the U.S. in the wake of 9-11 and um, has done um, these ambitious um, South Asian film festivals and now is increasingly doing uh, literary festivals. Um, this year's versions of both will be online. You can go to tasfira.org and see more of what they're about. Um, they've also helped present Arundhati in some of her recent Seattle visits. And Elliott Bay Book Company, where I work, um, is an independent bookstore that's I've been fortunate to work there for most of its 47 years. And it's been doing the long, hard work of putting um, good and vital books, such as the books Haymarket publishes in people's hands. And um, to say a little of our history here, I don't want to go too far out of the limb, but I believe we may have been, we may have a longer history with Arundhati um, than any other bookstore, at least outside of India. 
for it was in the spring of 1997 that um, she came to the U.S. for just a few cities. And uh, Seattle was, I think, one of the first and certainly took her heart, took her work um, to heart and soul, the, the God of Small Things, um, which this was before all that would happen with that book happened. Um, but as all anyone who's read that book knows, uh, what really happens is in that remarkable book. And um, we've had visits since. Her last visit was for her second novel, which came 20 years after The God of Small Things. That was um, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. There was a 20-year period there, and there were certainly people in much of that time who wondered um, what Arundhati Roy was, a, where, where she was with her writing, and um, those were the people in terms of looking for another novel. There were um, other writings, and um, over the series of uh, what was a basically a 20-year period, um, these writings, which were uh, published in initially in Indian magazines, Frontline and Outlook primarily, um, and then became to the U.S. and elsewhere in usually the form of small books of two or three essays, these small um, collections, Power Politics, uh, War Talk, uh, others. Um, and they kept happening. Um, various things that Arundhati Roy felt compelled to speak out about or things she was summoned to speak out about and where those places met. And um, in India and other countries, some of those books were published under titles. We also, I would sometimes get excited seeing there was another book, new book that I hadn't seen, but usually it was a slightly different combination of the same essays um, and, um, and with a different title. This was all sort of um, addressed uh, with the publication last year of of, of uh, the collected nonfiction, My Seditious Heart, and that was this is this tome, um, which also is not, noteworthy for, for its thickness because it's it's a thousand pages of writing um, uh, that that happened, and as things developed, many people came to actually many of the people came to her work came first to these essays, and and some have went back and read the novels. Uh, so there's she's had that course in history um, with her work. What the book she's here for today is actually a book already just two years on from the, from what the essays in My Seditious Heart, uh, this book, Azadi, Freedom, Fascism Fiction. Uh, this is its very publication launch day here in, in the U.S. It's coming out in a few days in India. Um, are nine pieces that are, have been written since then, and um, these pieces have a compelling, a, a vital power that um, – speaks, you know, that that are addressed certainly to things in India, but with resonance and relevance here in the U.S. Um, that's the subject we'll talk about today, where things are. With Arundhati will be Nick Estes, who is um, joining us from Albuquerque. He is um, a professor of American studies at the University of New Mexico. He's, he's a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe. He is also the co-founder of an organization started in 2014 called The Red Nation. The Red Nation, and go to therednation.org and you will see what that is. He's also the author of a book published last year by uh, Verso, which is another independent radical press along with Haymarket called Our History is the Future, um, a powerful book, which I think we have to send to Arundhati because um, I don't think the book has made it to India, but it should. Um, and he also um, later last year co-edited this anthology uh, along with um, uh Lakshiran Dillon, uh, Jackson Dillon, uh, Standing with Standing Rock, an anthology of by writing of activists and, and scholars of what happened at Standing Rock. So 
Arundhati and Nick will uh, have a conversation for the, for the next um, hour or so. You are invited to put questions in the uh, chat field uh, as you're watching, and um, those will be fed to Nick, and he will he will ask um, pose the work those in. Um, also, to say that the, today is being um, live captioned. Um, if you if you wish um, uh, to to have access to that, there's information in the chat, instructions in the chat. Tess Stevenson is doing that, and um, so yes, your questions, your comments, um, the closed captioning, and um, I will disappear in just a moment, and uh, will reappear at the very end. But to say that you're in great hands now, and um, to um, thank you all for wherever you are and all the places you are um, in joining us for this. I know um, I can only imagine the energy that would be in a room with um, Arundhati and Nick, and this is their first meeting, too. That's also for all the, the, the things we miss in not being together. We also get to bring people together in a different ways. So um, this will be um, a part of what we get to benefit from that. So direct your good energy, your focus, what would be applause um, in, in the affirmation and support to these two people who are doing great work, and particularly to the to what um, the book you're about to hear from that Arundhati Roy has read. So thank you all, and um, please welcome Arundhati and Roy and Nick Estes. Thanks so much, Rick. Um, that introduction was really wonderful. And as I was preparing for this particular interview, um, I was reading a little bit about Arundhati Roy's background. And as much as her work is, um, the, the things that she has written have been very powerful. You can also look at the things she has been criticized for and, and persecuted for um, by the Indian state as a testament to the, 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 the power of this, um, her particular uh, work and role as a writer. So for me personally, this is a great honor. I've, um, I'm a huge fan of Arundhati Roy. Um, I haven't told her this offline, but um, this is, I'm incredibly nervous and um, it's because it's a huge honor for me to just be talking to you and to um, have the opportunity to read uh, this wonderful book because it speaks to this moment in time. And I wanted to begin um, this interview with a question about the book's title, which is Azadi, uh, which is a Kashmiri word for freedom. And you say, the first word that comes to mind when you think of Azadi is is not novel, because, you know, as you write in, in the introduction, a novel gives a writer the freedom to be as complicated as she wants to move through worlds, languages and time through societies, communities and politics. So in many ways, you read the recent and long history of, of India through Kashmir. Can you explain your your choice um, of using this word and how it shapes the, this collection of essays? Um, azadi, uh, azadi is a word which is perhaps uh, Persian in origin, and then uh, you know Persian came and mingled with Hindust uh, Hindi and Hindustani and became uh, an Urdu word, and and uh, uh, you know. More recently, it traveled, I think, from the Iranian Revolution. Uh, it it was used by feminists, uh, you know, hum kya chahte azadi, what do we want, freedom. And then now, uh, now and meaning for, for several decades, has been the haunting cry of uh, Kashmiris who have been fighting uh, the Indian military occupation, who have been killed in their thousands for it. But 
oddly enough, um, you know, there's a deathly silence in India about the Kashmiri struggle. There is there's a silence from the left. There's a silence from the liberals. Of course, uh, there's a lot of noise from the right, which covers uh, the real truth of the story. But also, you know, um, what is very dangerous in this part of the subcontinent is that, let's say, the the, the large Muslim population in India, which is, uh, I think, 15% or 13%, which is, I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of people, um, are a kind of hostage to the rivalry with Pakistan, to the Kashmiri independence movement. And the Indian Muslims have a completely different space that they occupy. You know, they don't have the option of even thinking about freedom. They have to think about how to live here with dignity. And recently, uh, this government, the Modi government, the right-wing Hindu nationalist government, came up with a new citizenship law, which was piggybacking on an old thing called the National Register of Citizens, which was sort of reactivated in the state of Assam, which borders Bangladesh. And, uh, you know, some 20 million people were off that register, people who had been born and who had lived in India for generations. And on top of that, the government passed another law called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was like very blatantly anti-Muslim. And so suddenly, there was this really odd uh, juxtaposition that happened last year where Kashmir, which had a special status in the Indian constitution, on the 5th of August, it was stripped of its status. It was sort of integrated into India in, in the most brutal manner possible. You know, they, they, there's an internet siege. There's, it's the most densely uh, militarized zone in the world. Uh, their phones were put off. And almost for the whole of this past year, Kashmir has been under curfew and silenced, lockdown, COVID, all of it, you know. But while Kashmir was silenced, massive protests uh, came out on the streets of India by uh, by this new Muslim, anti-Muslim citizenship law. And their chant was also Azadi. So while the Kashmiri Azadi chant was silenced, here there was the swell of a demand for a different kind of Azadi, obviously not independence as in secession or an independent state, but uh, you know, a cry for dignity, for human rights, for being treated as equal citizens. And uh, that too was brutally crushed. You know, the rest of India sort of became, uh, I mean, not not with the kind of cruelty that Kashmiris have witnessed, but, you know, it began to seem like there was curfew, there were internet cuts, uh, people were brutalized, killed. And so uh, this series of essays really began to ask what is the connection between the Kashmiri call for Azadi and the new cry on the Indian streets? Is it a chasm? Is it a bridge? And, uh, you know, and, and the essays are uh, written from the point of view of a literary imagination, uh, which, which then basically interrogates the idea of Azadi in its myriad forms. You're, oh, sorry, you're, I can't hear you, Nick. 
Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the the literary imagination that you're talking about, I think you make a point in one of the essays, um, which is this, uh, a talk that you gave about how, you know, your writer friends were approaching you and talking about, well, when are you going to get back to writing? When are you going to get back to the, the quote unquote real work of a fiction writer? And you make a very powerful point, not just in this book, but I think throughout your career that what you are doing is a form of uh, of, of literature, um, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And so can you talk a little bit about your role as a writer and how you see it playing out, not just in 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 the um, the realm of, you know, political analysis and commenting on current events, but also imagining new worlds through uh, whether it's through the God of Small Things or the ministry, your most recent um, novel. So uh, when I wrote The God of Small Things, um, you know, obviously I used to work in, you know, I'm an architect and then I worked in cinema and this was my first uh, book. And, you know, who, 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 could, who could anticipate, uh, you know, that kind of attention for a first book? Um, you know, it won the Booker Prize and it sold millions of copies. And I found myself very suspicious of, of this kind of uh, embrace by an establishment that I've always been very suspicious of, you know. I felt like my proteins were being sort of... <laughs> melted down and <laughs> I was I'll just be turned into some domestic you know fame is also very domesticated uh, domesticating you know everyone wants you to write the same book again and it's different things but uh, and I and that was just around the time that India had sort of shifted from being this non-aligned power a poor country but a poor country with some spine with some dignity you know uh, with a great socialist uh, underpinning, you know. I mean, Kerala, where I grew up, was the first democratically elected communist government in the world, if that's not an oxymoron, but whatever. So I grew up with the, you know, strikes and the big protests and the red flags and the revolution was coming. And then suddenly, by the 90s, uh, you know, everything changed and the markets were opened of course, the Soviet Union had collapsed and India aligned itself with the free market, with the U.S., with Israel. with, And um, suddenly the, the, the literary imagination, the cinematic imagination, the poetic imagination, the public language, everything changed. And in 97, I was like on the cover of every magazine. In 1998, uh, the right-wing government came in and did this series of nuclear tests. And I was sort of being marketed as, as, as this uh, sort of the new India, you know, the, the new India taking its place in the high table. And I knew that if I didn't have the option of keeping quiet, because if I kept quiet, that meant I agreed with all that. So I wrote the first political essay, which was called The End of Imagination. And, you know, within like hours, I was kicked off the pedestal of this, you know, great, great sort of literary sensation. And there was this incredible disappointment in me, you know, by people around me that how could you have done this, you know? And I literally in that essay, I said, you know, uh, uh, I was talking about the fact that nuclear weapons 
uh, are it's not just whether they are used or not that is the problem but how they colonize your imagination how they nationalize your imagination mm-hmm. you know how they change the the public language and i said you know if it's anti hindu and anti indian to have this imagination implanted in my brain then i secede i declare myself a mobile republic this was like you know in this orgy of nationalism the you know fairy princess had just come out and 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 shat on everyone you know more or less <laughs> i was just like out but you know there was another world which suddenly mm, uh, kind of opened up to me and i traveled i i and i began to write these essays and uh, people were unsure what is this is it academic is it a journalist is it a pamphleteer you know they were somewhere between genres because uh, there was certainly a you know it, it, it was an intervention it was urgent it was furious it wasn't and it was more like uh, I, i saw that that these movements like the the big anti dam movement the displacement of these nations of people mm-hmm. of ancient people you know there needed to be a story like a story was like putting a weapon in the hands of hands of the movement you know so i was not writing what people call truth to power i was not writing some on the one hand this and on the other hand that and on the third hand this i was saying this is our fight and i am the writer on the side of the line you know and and people i think things might have changed a little very recently but you know there's this kind of fear of a writer being political as if the god of small things wasn't political <laughs> you know uh, uh, the people in kerala understood it was political and dealing with the subject that was absolutely taboo which is to talk about caste and the 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 ways in which the left has not been able to deal with it but people managed to change that into oh it's so beautiful it's about children the language you know so uh people people kind of work hard to to soften the edges sometimes of um of writing which is uh, which which makes them uneasy but for me uh, when i started writing the political essays you know they would get translated immediately into mm. indian languages made into pamphlets distributed in forests in and they understood it as literature people on the front lines you know so uh, that's what i said in one of the essays that for me uh, there's something about literature that is constructed between readers and writers mm-hmm. not between critics and literature festivals and <laughs> you know reviewers but between readers and writers which is urgent and which is a kind of shelter you know mm. so it's a like there are some moments in my life to me are, are, are so uh you know i mean more than any royalties more than any you know awards like uh i remember being in a village in bengal you know very late at night walking through the paddy fields and there was a huge um, 
standoff because the government, which happened to be a left government, actually was trying to take over the land, give it to a huge chemical uh, plant. And there was firing. I could hear the firing happening in the distance. And mm. I, I was just walking around along this band and this, this man just appeared in the shadows and he said, you know, I just want to thank you for understanding what we're doing. They they think, the other side thinks we have weapons. We don't have weapons. We just pretend, we just use sticks and silhouette and pretend we have weapons. We don't have anything. But, uh, but we're fighting and very few people, you know, at that point, everyone on in the TV studios will start turning Gandhian and denouncing violence uh, when it's easy for them, you know, expecting everyone to just lie down and die. Uh, while the land is taken, mm. which is why I was so 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 happy to read uh, your piece in the Jacobin. You know, I just thought, goodness, how much you would have had to talk about if you had come here and walked with the comrades in the forests of Central India. Yeah, that's I I really appreciate. I mean, it's there's there's a lot to be said, and I think you know one thing that um. Uh, a friend of mine once said, uh, her name is uh, Laylee Long Soldier. She's a poet. I tried to be a poet, not good at it. Um, <laughs> but she said, you have to look for poetry. Poetry is more than just words. You have to look for poetry and actions. And um, it's the job of the writer to to basically capture or to, to be able to see that kind of poetry. And one thing that I've really been inspired by your writing specifically is that you don't confine yourself to 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 one thing. And I think there's a lot of expectation for people to be kind of um, characterized as, as a certain kind of writer, you know, like you're a fiction writer, you're a poet. Um, and we confront that, especially within literary nationalism, uh, especially people who are not part of, you know, kind of the European tradition, but nonetheless have inherited, you know, the baggage of that, whether it's through colonialism or imperialism. And one of the ways that I really appreciated that you you push back on that is this idea of translation um, and the the multiple languages that one has to to know and to understand. And I'm not just talking about languages that people speak because capitalism yeah. itself is a language. It tr it transforms relations into profit. It transforms things into money. And I've been thinking about this because I'm writing this piece and I, I haven't like crystallize what I actually, you know, how I understand it. But I felt like um, you were really kind of challenging. In some ways, you were being more cosmopolitan than the than the cosmopolitan people, because you're 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 looking at a place that is, you know, as you say, is simultaneously captured in different, you know, uh, centuries. And but also it's overlapped in, in nations and in different kinds of people that can't be just you know, encompassed in one kind of single literary tradition. Yeah, I think I mean India. You know, uh, one of the one of one of the essays I say that if a novel shouldn't have an enemy, but if the Ministry of Utmost Happiness has an enemy, then it's the idea of one nation, one language, one religion, which is what uh, the Modi government and the um, fascists around him. Uh, are trying to push for, but uh, in India there are something like seven, more than seven hundred languages spoken. Twenty-two of them are 
you know, official languages. And within each language, uh, there is such a history of colonizing, being colonized. There's so many, um, you know, there's so many cycles of respect and disrespect, the, 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 the words that will be used to describe this caste or that gender. And so, and the and 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 like the first essay in the book, of course, it's, it, it, the caption is a line from Neruda, which says, "In what language does rain fall over tormented cities?" And um, it's really talking about the uh, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, sort of swimming. The characters not uh, are swimming in this ocean of languages, and you see. For example, the, the the most shattering memory of people in modern day India is the memory of the massacres that took place in 1947 when India was partitioned uh, and, uh, you know, Pakistan and India became two separate countries. Although there were many nations, the violence was of assimilation as much as it was of partition. But, you know, one of the things you see is that before the partition happened, language was partitioned. You know, the language that we uh, used to call Hindustani was then sort of partitioned into Urdu, which was supposedly spoken by Muslims and Hindi by Hindus. And the violence of that, you know, continues to this day. I mean, to this day, you'll have fascist mobs go and raise to the ground some you know, poet who wrote 300 years ago, some poet of love. And um, so so language, uh, you know, language has been at the heart of much of the violence uh, in, in, you know, in, in, this, in this continent that is masquerading as a nation. And uh, so uh, uh, a lot of the, uh, and even as I was saying earlier, you know, when they did the nuclear test, you could see the public language changed. And uh, so, and, and now you have, you know, when they start off on these national register of citizens and you have people who live in these little islands in the most, uh, you know, distant parts of the Brahmaputra, mighty Brahmaputra River, which keeps changing course, which has storms and tornadoes and consumes people's lives. But all of them have these little plastic bags with their documents and they have internalize this bureaucracies, you know, legacy papers and um, voter list. And, you know, similarly, the people in the Narmada Valley who are being displaced by the dam, they have a whole other language uh, by which they are described in government files, you know, PAP, that is project affected person, hmm. or, you know, <laughs> reservoir affected or canal affected or whatever. And, and so, you know, like as a writer in this part of the world, to study love and violence and nationhood and religion, language is a perfect entry point, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of elaborating on this idea of language and the partition of language, you talk about um cast quite a bit in in your work and it's something you know this is me being the the ugly american it's we have a we have a racial hierarchy in this country 
Um, I don't. I wouldn't say that it's com- it's comparable, um, but there are similarities. But one thing that you talk about, it's it's not so much um, a, a caste system as you say. It's about Brahmanism and uh, the re-Brahmanization of uh, you know sections of of Indian society, specifically through this organization, which you call the most one of the most powerful organizations in India right now, which is the RSS. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Because I think reading some of your interviews, but then also um, people have personal uh, messaged me uh, privately and asked, you know, uh, well, isn't she, isn't Arundhati Roy Brahman herself? Isn't she from this upper caste? Mm. No, I'm not actually. Uh, my mother is a Christian, and my father, uh, he he was he belonged to an organization called. The Brahmo Samaj, which is not Brahmin, but he also became a Christian. So um, no, I'm not a Brahmin. And when when we when the anti-caste movement has traditionally used the word Brahminism, it isn't about Brahmins. It's about the idea of this kind of caste hierarchy, you know, which is uh, so. It's not just Brahmins that practice Brahminism, but it's a. I, I would say fundamentally. Um, the difference between uh, race and caste is only that caste has also given itself uh, religious sanction. You know, mm. uh, Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, all all of them, at least in their texts, may say that, you know, all human beings are equal or brothers, but no, they also have their... Uh, but in in the religious text, you have a stipulated hierarchy, and each caste. So you have four four divisions, which are called varnas: the Brahmins, the the Vaishyas, the Shudras, the Kshatriyas, the Shudras, and then outside of it are the outcasts. But e- each of these has is divided into these tiny little uh, jatis, which are castes, mm. and each jati has a uh, hereditary occupation so this is the terror you know and you have you have uh, so the brahmins are the priests the vaishyas are the traders the kshatriyas are the warriors the shudras are the menials and the outcasts of course are the dalits the untouchable the unseeable and so on the violence of thinking like that it's unbelievable you know and if you look at indian society and you look at even I would say most Indian liberal intellectuals, even left-wing intellectuals, they will they will just elide this issue, which is actually the engine on which Indian society runs, you know? So I've written a little book called The Doctor and the Saint, and it's about the conversations and debates between the the most beloved leader of the Dalits, Dr. Ambedkar, and the most revered human being in the world, probably, Gandhi. And and while I was researching this, I, who am like everyone else in the world, and particularly millions of Indians, indoctrinated in a completely false um, falsification of what Gandhi was, what he stood for. And so I went back, and, and this little text is based not on speculation, not on interpretation, but only producing his own writing. Mm. 
uh, at the time when Gandhi was in South Africa, all of us are told that he fought racism, he fought segregation. No, he his first battle in South Africa was for a third entrance to be open to the Durban post office so that Indians and blacks would not have to share the same entrance. And he con- continuously in his writing made a difference between the upper caste Indians who he said are Aryans and the brothers of the Imperial Britain and the lower castes who are liars and, you know, basically unreformable. And then that, I mean, I traced that from his time in South Africa right up to the end of his life, you know, how his views on race were informed by his childhood views on caste and then how caste came back, the attitude to workers, the attitude to women. And so... Uh, like I said in this, in these essays, not elaborated upon like I have in the Doctor and the Saint, but but fascism, which we are experiencing now, is you know it 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 adorns itself with fake news, but the fake news is built on a fake history, and liberals and left wing intellectuals laugh at the at the kind of corny fake history of the right, but they themselves have created a fake history which elides the role of caste in this country, you know, which is absolutely, um, I mean, the the dishonesty is unbelievable. Mm. And I think recently in the wake of the George Floyd protests, um, which I would say that have erupted all over the world, it's probably one of the largest mass protests in world history. I, the only thing I can think of comparable to to them in this recent moment, or I guess in, in recent history, is the um, the mass demonstrations against the U.S. invasion of Iraq back in 2003. But in South Africa, I, I believe it was in South Africa, I could be wrong, um, they toppled a Gandhi statue. And in the United yeah, States... Uh, I think it was in Ghana, Although there are movements in South Africa saying Gandhi must fall. And the thing is, you know, I, I, I mean, it's difficult to talk about this subject in, you know, just an interview because it's such a difficult subject. Mm -hmm. And this in the doctor and the saint, I'm not saying that Gandhi had nothing to recommend himself. You know, of course, I'm not saying that he was a brilliant politician, a cunning politician. He had a lot of things that I think were visionary, but we cannot, you know, we cannot build uh, an understanding of who we are and what we are fighting for unless we are honest about his views on race, his views on caste, and his views on women. And if you confront them, it's very hard to co- co- to prefix the word Mahatma to his name for me. Mm. Um, I want to change uh, gears just a little bit and talk about, um, you know, an element in your writing that I think a lot of folks here in uh, in this part of the world can identify with is the rise of somebody like Modi and specifically his alignment uh, with somebody like Trump. And you write you write this in the in the nation piece um, that came out, which I read on um, the date, you know, the date came off the presses, um, how this kind of howdy modi, you know, spectacle that happened in Texas 
um, you know, it was happening alongside Google Trends that showed a surge in searches for like phrases like marry a Kashmiri girl or buy land in Kashmir, which was basically advertising um, territory uh, for Indian Indian settlers to come in and, and to colonize. Um, but then also while Trump visited India in his, his most recent um, uh, meeting with Modi, um, there was a massacre happening. And yeah, in my city. In your city. And both of them, you know, operate like Modi seems to be a little bit more on the softer edge in his public appearance. While, you know, having a, an iron fist, obviously, in his crackdown against dissent, whereas Trump doesn't really care. But the thing that they share in common is an authoritarianism, uh, as well as a make-believe fantasy and how they've dealt with not only dissent, but also uh the, the current pandemic. Um, and I was wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little bit more on that and this, this relationship, this um, very loving relationship between these two leaders. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the difference between them is that Trump, uh, you know, Trump, Trump, of course, he does have his his militias and he does have his media outlets, but you know the institutions, uh, whether it's the army, whether it's the intelligence services, and whether it's the mainstream—not uh, Fox News, but you know the mainstream sort of press—are uh, showing a, 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 a kind of resistance to him. But Modi is a person who has from the time he was a very young adult, being a member of this organization called the RSS, which has modeled itself on uh, Mussolini's black shirts, who whose ideologues have openly praised Hitler. But that's fine. I mean, they have a massive infrastructure. They have a militia of something like 600,000 people. They have um, these branches, hundreds of thousands of branches all over the country. They they run. They are the state, you know. Mm-hmm. So the the uh, the difference between the two is that one has the organization of fascism behind him, as well as the four hundred twenty four seven news channels, as well as a great portion of uh, Bollywood, which is an incredible ambassador of. Uh, the Hindu right, with many honorable exceptions. So, so you have a situation here where it's a machine that's running, you know, and uh, the the all the institutions of democracy have been taken over. But um, both of them are great friends, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons why Modi didn't react early to the COVID pandemic was because Trump was visiting and there was going to be this huge namaste Trump, uh, you know, meeting in Gujarat, which of course turned out to be a hub of massive coronavirus uh, soon after that. But by the time Trump came from Gujarat to Delhi, you had uh, the protesters who were on the streets uh, very much like the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, you know, there were millions of people on the streets against the citizenship law, which was, I mean, that by then it had become about more than just that, you know, and there was poetry, there were students, universities were being, you know, just battered by police and so on. 
But uh, then you had the massacre while Trump was here, where, I mean, you know, we, 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 it, w- it was just the brutality was unbelievable and it was exhibitionist. And we saw the videos of the police, you know, with these battered Muslim men lying on the street, forcing them to sing the national anthem, mm. forcing them to, you know, mocking them about other the mobs, you know, burning down mosques and so on. And now, of course, the whole narrative has been turned and Muslims are being blamed for killing Muslims and major you know, human rights activists, students, all are being put into prison every day. So the, the you know, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that the three geniuses of the early 21st century, Modi, Trump and Bolsonaro are on the char- top of the charts of coronavirus, you know. Uh, but now today, the newspapers are telling us, not the TV channels, but the newspapers, that the Indian economy has shrunk 23.9%. Because mm-hmm. Modi ordered a lockdown, you know, because fascists love spectacles. So his spectacle was, I'm going to call the most strict lockdown the world has ever known. And 1.38 billion people were given four hours notice. And then it was like a curfew. And that was like an chemical experiment because suddenly you had millions of working class people who had no homes, who had no money, who had no way of getting home to their villages, walking, you know, hundreds of kilometers home, getting beaten by the police, getting sprayed with, uh, you know, bleach and carrying the virus to the four corners of, of the country. So, 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 Right now, we are sitting on a on an economy that's crashed, millions of people out of work, a, a, a developing war on the borders of Ladakh, which used to be a part of Kashmir, uh, India, which whose army was you know always on the alert uh, on the Western Front with Pakistan, now has to be battle ready on a three thousand kilometer long front on high altitude warfare ready you know so they don't have forget weapons they don't even have warm clothes mm. and in an economy that's collapsing so we are and 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 we are looking at it's it's almost you almost feel like you're sitting on a on the crater of a volcano just cushioned with a thick layer of propaganda that's it you know so I mean, this is really that was kind of my next question. And because the New York Times reported yesterday that, you know, the Indian economy, you know, contracted nearly 24 percent, which is the most drastic fall in decades. Right. And it, ever, like, actually. ever, like not just ever. and not just not just for like the like this is a global thing. It's not just um, it's not just for India. It's specifically as a country. But for like, I think the U.S. economy shrank like nine point five percent. And Japan, 7.6% to give people an idea. Um, I was thinking about this in in terms of like even a a country like Beirut that had that explosion. And it was they estimated it, you know, initially to be about five billion dollars USD, you know, uh, in, in damages. But they didn't account for like the actual blast radius, which now they, they think is around $25 billion. The GDP, the gross domestic product of us of a country like um, Lebanon is 50 billion. 
So half of its GDP was knocked out in 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 almost in a like blast. A, in a single blast. And but in India, you know, I mean, we must we must remember that it isn't because of just because of the Corona lockdown. Right. It was already before Corona, a forty-five year high of unemployment. Modi had you know in two thousand sixteen come out one night and announced demonetization where. 80% of the currency was made no longer legal tender. So it was like some economists said, like he had just taken a gun and shot the heart of the engine of a, of a moving car. Then now the wheels have been taken away, you know, but the problem is that the, the, the you know, the poor do not exist in the imagination of of the elite anymore since the 1990s you know even if you look at bollywood films they used to be about fighting about the poor about workers about unions about villages now they they, they just uh, these films that are shown in malls they don't have poverty in them literature has for the most part no more poor people in it you know poetry has lost the poor so somehow there's no way of uh, planning for them if they don't exist in your imagination, mm-hmm. which is why when the when they started walking, when the lockdown was called, it was you know they had been hidden away in the crevices of cities, unacknowledged, and suddenly they appeared. You know, so you 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 are in a situation where uh, it's like it's just been happening. Uh, you know, like I recently said to someone, it was like, it feels like a diabetic who who's just had a silent heart attack after silent heart attack after mm. silent heart attack. But the diabetes is just the propaganda that masks the illness, you know. And so suddenly you have a situation where the heart is failing. Mm. In, your, in your kind of closing essay in this book, um, around uh, the coronavirus, you write, I think this very, I think it's, you know, a very pertinent kind of phrase. It says the pandemic is a portal. And you talk about how in the past, um, pandemics have forced societies to to break with the past and imagine, you know, their world anew. And I think this can be said of, of many crises um, that societies face. I feel after reading this book, um, not just reading this book, but the times we live in, I feel less pessimistic about that that new world. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, feel the same way. And I guess a lot of the questions that we're getting, uh, even in the chat now, is like, how do we how do we imagine a, a new world in this particular moment? As we've seen, you know, the intersection of the rise of fascism with this coronavirus pandemic. And now we also have the question of of global climate change that seems to have taken a back seat in this larger conversation. Well, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that that uh, when I said the pandemic is a portal and the last paragraphs are about what are we going to leave behind and what are we going to drag through the portal? Are we going to drag the carcasses of our dead rivers and our smoky skies and, you know, the idea that you know our oceans are now filling up with PPE suits and masks, but I think more important is you know to understand the ways in which we are being controlled now, 
uh, apart from the fact that nothing suits the fascists more than having us all, you know, obviously uh, siloed into our homes. Uh, in a country like India, that's not possible because people don't have, I mean, you know, the, the politics of the lockdown is completely the reverse here because mm-hmm. people don't have homes. Like, you know, a lock a lockdown means social compression, not social distancing here because it's just impossible, you know. So you you are seeing data which shows that in poorer areas where people have been cramped up and people have just had to go about their work, there is a, a kind of greater resistance and a sort of herd immunity coming out. But I think the real danger that is that we face is that the idea that the the classes that can be socially distanced will begin to view those that can't be as a biohazardous body, you know? Mm. And there'll be a lot of attempt to try and see if the world can be made to work where the uh, where the walking classes, the, the labor classes that had to walk thousands of kilometers home will be separated from the flying classes. And can we have production in which, uh, you know, these two classes don't meet at all? Like, can can we do away with the biohazardous body, the surplus people then, you know? So uh, the governments have shown, all these governments, meaning the governments that we are talking about, yours, ours, have shown, <clears throat> have shown every sign that they will seize upon this pandemic to increase controls, to increase surveillance, to increase the the polarization of who's wealthy and who's not. But at some point, that is going to break apart, you know, which I think we are you're seeing in the United States. I I I uh, I mean I haven't spent a lot of time there, but I think that uh, you know people like even even this last two months in the run up to the election, people probably do understand that whatever happens in the elections, the elections are not going to be the way to a new world. Although it's very important that Trump is voted out, but the the new people that come in will not come in with a new imagination. And the polarization is so deadly that the chances of a kind of violence on the streets is is very, very high. You know, mm-hmm. similarly over here, the chaos that we can expect as things break down, maybe we we shouldn't be so scared of it, is what I'm saying, you know, because nothing is going to transition so beautifully, so easily uh, with by you know without without a kind of I don't know without a kind of real battle, nothing is going to change. Mm. It's it's terrifying to think that way, but. I think that way now, you know, that maybe many of us will will perish in it, but uh, the the polarization is so huge and so obvious. And, uh, you know, conversations are not even happening. Mm-hmm. 
I had a I had a final question and you don't have to answer it, but I wanted to just ask, you know, what is the future of Indian democracy? So, um, you know, I I wonder if I I wanted to read something. Somebody sent it to me, and I it was like a little passage that I had written many years ago about democracy. Let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah. Someone someone actually just sent me this yesterday. So this was from a from a essay I wrote called Democracy's Failing Light, not in this book, in a previous collection. And I said the question here really is what have we done to democracy? What have we turned it into? What happens once democracy has been used up? When it has been hollowed out and emptied with meaning? What happens when each of its institutions has metastasized into something dangerous? What happens now that democracy and the free market have fused into a single predatory organism with a thin, constricted imagination that revolves almost entirely around the idea of maximizing profit? Is it possible to reverse this process? Can something that has mutated go back to being what it used to be? Mm. So, you know, when I look at India, uh, in India, well, let's say, uh, you know, the British left in 1947. By the 1960s, there were there were revolutionary struggles here, you know, against feudalism, against, you know, for uh, calling for land to the tiller, calling for the redistribution of wealth, calling for revolution, mm-hmm. you know. By the 80s, and those movements were crushed, mercilessly crushed. Then by the 1980s and 90s, you were, you had the large anti-dam movements, indigenous people, fighting against displacement. So from asking for the redistribution of wealth, we were reduced to saying whatever little people have, don't take that away, you know? Those movements were crushed. Now you're reduced to begging for your citizenship Mm. because these citizenship laws are not for refugees. They are not for people coming migrants. They are for people who already live here, like the Nazi regime in in Germany asked uh, decided the Nuremberg laws meant that citizens had to give the government a set of documents that the government would then decide are you a citizen or are you not you know so you have people now being reduced to begging for their citizenship the ground they stand on is not firm anymore and of course just just praying that you won't go to jail tomorrow you know and uh, the laws that have been passed now are so the question you ask what kind of a democracy is india i'd say that india is a one party democracy which is an oxymoron because the machinery including the election machinery is compromised so i do not see that the crisis we are in now the crater the volcano that is about to erupt is going to be soothed by any election mm-hmm. because in the elections the media the machinery the money the data everything belongs to one party you know mm-hmm. so that's why i say there will be an implosion mm-hmm. 
So we have some questions from viewers that I'd like to get to, um, and you've kind of answered some of these. So um, if you want to flip it however you want, please feel free to do so. But there was there was a recent book published by Isabel w Wilkerson called Cass. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's an American. No, a US I, I, of course I know. I mean, I've met her actually, but I haven't managed to read the book. Okay. Yeah. So I'll skip that one because um, it was about um, your your perspectives on that. Um, the other one was um, going back to Gandhi and and whether or not he ever changed his his racist kind of caste based views. So um, you know, in the Doctor and the Saint, it traces Gandhi's writings right from <clears throat> you know the eighteen. 60-something to 1946. And while he, uh, you know, he's known to have uh, campaigned against caste, he actually um, didn't change his views, I would say, you know. Mm -hmm. he, he, he had a very missionary approach to it. He said he was against the idea of untouchability. You know, but if you look at essays like the essays he wrote, like the ideal Bhangi, Bhangi is the municipal sweeper that used to clean. I mean, whose caste based hereditary job was to clean, uh, you know, shit. And he writes about how, you know, this is such a holy job and how, what the ideal Bhangi should do. And, you know, the Brahmin should always be a Brahmin. The Bhangi should always be a Bhangi. But. Everybody should be treated equally. So, uh, you know, but I would say that uh, rather than listen to me, read that book, you know, because it's a complicated and a little scary for me to just talk uh, off the top of my head because that book is, uh, it really quotes the writing and quotes the sources and it deals with the complications of that debate between Gandhi and Ambedkar. And uh, so, but let me say just that after uh, after having written it and researched it, researched against my own indoctrination, I was appalled. Mm. The other question, I'm going to modify it a little bit because you kind of uh, already answered part of it, but is there an organized front to fight the rise of fascism in India today? No, I mean, so so the political, you, you know, the political parties that uh, are in opposition to the BJP, the parliamentary parties, whether it's the Congress, whether it's the left, have, have more or less been decimated. Even the uh, anti-caste parties <clears throat> have been decimated. So the opposition in parliament exists in the form that the BJP wishes it to exist, doing work that only helps them. <clears throat> there was the when the when the huge protest sprang up uh, uh, against the citizenship law, there were students. It was almost beginning to look like a revolution, but then coronavirus came, and it it was smashed. People have been arrested, like in Delhi, people were killed, and now hundreds of people are in jail. Students, professors, activists are being called in by the police, threatened, picked off one by one. 
there was no lockdown for the repression. You know, there was only a lockdown for people. And so uh, right now, uh, there isn't an organized front. Although, you know, an organized front may not be even possible in a in a country like India, mm. because an organization also can be broken quite easily, you know. But uh, but I do believe that the situation is is so dire now that something new will come up um, because people can't live like this. Mm. The next um, question has um, has to do with the reporting. I'm assuming on the issues around uh, Kashmir and how they're reported on uh, how journalists report on what's happening in Kashmir um, within India. And I guess the question is how do, how do reporters and rioters work to combat the oversimplification that's coming out of the propaganda machine? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's not the, the, the problem is not oversimplification. You know, the problem is of a, of a, of a kind of nationalism that that eulogizes uh, 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 the densest military occupation in the world and demonizes the people, you know. So you have a situation where you have an internet siege in Kashmir where since August 5th last year, on and off, but mostly on. And, and so... At this point, I mean, imagine the world locked down for coronavirus. Everyone, we are all doing this. Kashmiris can't do this, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and they, at, for many months, they did, couldn't even make phone calls. So business collapse, students, hospitals, courts. So it's a kind of viola- mass violation of human rights that I think is unprecedented in the world. This mm-hmm. digital siege. First, you push everyone into a digital era, and then you say, "Oh, Kashmiris don't need the internet; they only use it for pornography and terrorism." You know, like this is what uh, you know, sort of senior government people say. So, and then you have this twenty-four-seven propaganda, and so, and and but you have a lot of people, including a lot of young Indians, I think, who have you know, begun to feel the the fact that to 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 let this happen in your name is a it, it eventually corrodes you. So it's not some altruistic thing you're doing on behalf of someone else, but only uh, you know to honor yourself to say I'm sorry, but this is just not is not something that I find acceptable. You know, but but it's very very frightening, very frightening because. People, people are picked up, arrested. I mean, uh, you know, for me, for example, you know, people have said, okay, she should be tied to a tank and used as a human shield. Or, you know, if I do a book launch, then they'll come and smash up the stage or whatever. But, you know, these things have to be said. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, ultimately, you know, I said it long ago and I'll say it again that, India needs Azadi from Kashmir almost more than Kashmir needs Azadi from India because mm. India is, 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 its ship is sinking and a lot of it is because of this hate-fueled, blind rage that it can't 
managed to see through, you know? Mm. And sort of a final question is, you know, how, especially I think with the case of, of Kashmir, um, what are the possibilities for solidarity, um, not just within India, but I think internationally with the Kashmiri cause? Because I believe, you know, it's something that I, you know, I could I'll admit in ignorance on. I, I see it peripherally um, in a lot of kind of uh, advocacy work and movement work. But I think in this moment in time, especially with, um, you know, the George Floyd protests and the current pandemic, that there are possibilities for solidarity. And what what does that what does that look like? That's that's, you know, obviously, I think first before any kind of solidarity can be embarked upon, one needs to understand uh, what's going on there, you know. So I'd say that the solidarity could begin with reading. And uh, there's an organization in Kashmir called the JKCCS, the Jammu Kashmir uh, Coalition for Civil Society. It has a website. It's re recently brought out a really brilliant report on the internet siege. It should be available online. And I think, it, you know, it's something that people need to read and understand of what is being done to people. You know, hundreds of people, you know, it's apart from thousands of people being killed, you know, people being blinded by pellets and now put under this siege, which is absolutely inhuman. And then one last question. What are you currently reading? Oh, my goodness. I, I just finished reading. Uh, I mean, for two days after that, I could hardly see because the type was so small and it's like 2,000 pa uh, 2, page biography of... Hitler by Ian Kershaw. But yeah, that, that's what I was currently reading. I just finished it like a couple of days ago. And uh, then started reading a, quite a beautiful book by the Chinese writer Yu Hua. Mm. I think it's called China in 10 Words. It's really lovely. Well, thank you so much, Arundhati, um, for taking the time for this interview. Um, I have a lot more questions, but sadly, I have to turn it when over. When we meet. Favorite. Yeah, when we meet in <laughs> when, person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And at this point, I'm coming in at least uh, audibly. I'm not sure if I am visually, but to thank both Nick and Arundhati. Um, as she said one of the things to do from this is read and um, uh, to read her work, to read Nick's work. I will say because of a particular thing that the Doctrine of the Saint, which she really had an insistence about, that is available as a, as its own freestanding book from Haymarket, but it's also contained within my seditious heart. So um, that's that's all in there to read and to understand the nuance because there is so much complication and nuance when we try and do things quickly. A, a, another little comment I'll just make uh, because Nick in his role was not he was this last part where he was asking about international work and solidarity and he's been doing a lot of work with Palestine and that for for the work he's comes from here in North America uh, there's a lot of affinity and 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 learning and rapport there so that's that is an example um, since we were, we didn't quite get into a, a specific one but I know Nick um, has done that um, for I don't know how people were 
Arundhati's are going to go to bed on this because this is like night, it's nighttime. Uh, Nick, <laughs> where he is and where we are, it's, uh, I'm not used to having this much to go into a day with in terms of what's what I feel full with, and what I think others here um, have, have, have are going to take from this, and that's true of all the uh, North America. Um, so much, and um, yes, to continue when the two of you can be in the same place together and um, and continue, and it'll be even deeper Seriously. because. Yes, uh, because the Elliot, uh, Elliot yes. Bay Bookshop. We're coming there. Yes, we will do. We will go wherever. I and I left out some of the infomercial parts, which is to order books and buy books because uh, we do have copies of Azadi uh, on publication today. I think there's probably been little. Um, uh, Anthony has been putting some links to buy the books. We also have Nick's books, uh, "Our History Is the Future" and um, "The Standing with um, Standing with Standing Rock," uh, the anthology, and we also have Arundhati's other books, um, um, the, the novels, and and um, my seditious heart um so I, on on that note as as there's still so much to say and, and for all of us to carry um heartfelt thanks from us to all those who've been part of this to anthony and sean and john of haymarket to um shahina and rita and roshni and Alka of, of tasvir to all my colleagues at elliott bay book company um and certainly most um uh, most fully to um, Arundhati and Nick themselves. And um, we've got you know a lot of work to do, but we also have, and part of that's the reading, but then all the rest that comes with it. And um, these two people are doing so much um, to make this a more just and better place, a better world. So with that, um, for all everyone involved, we thank you and bid you good night, good morning, good day, um, and take care. And um, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.